This is Meatless, a podcast about eating. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food and drink writer. I'll be having conversations with chefs, writers, and more about how their personal and political beliefs determine whether or not they eat meat. The show will ask the question, how do identity, culture, economics, and history affect a diet? In this episode, I talk to chef and chocolatier Legusta Yearwood, who owns Legusta's Luscious, a chocolate shop in New Paltz, New York, and co-owns the cafe Commissary in the same town, as well as the sweets shop Confectionery in New York City's East Village. I first came across Legusta's work through her blog, Resistance is Fertile, back in 2011. When I finally got to eat her chocolate, I was even more blown away by her capacity to merge the sweet and the savory, the herbaceous and the rich and to do it all with her politics and veganism at the fore. My first piece as a food writer was a profile of her for the now-defunct website The Hairpin. The headline called her The Punk Chocolatier, and that remains true, even as her work has expanded and morphed and will soon include a major cookbook. While sitting on a couch in her New Paltz chocolate shop, we discussed the blind spots of veganism, her forthcoming book, and how to bring politics into a business. chatting with me for this um and actually I wanted to start with getting you to tell me a bit about your cookbook ah okay (laughs) already I just made a weird sound first thing (laughs) um okay so the cookbook is um it's called sweet and savory um with like an x for the and for edginess yeah um and it's the art of vegan confections from Legusta's luscious mm-hmm. um and it's basically not everything we make at our shop but right. a lot of things the yeah. more maybe home friendly things to make um it's roughly like half caramel type stuff and half ganache um confections so a lot of truffles a lot of um different caramel recipes like rosemary caramel and um some like uh candy bars that are like a combination of like ganache layer and and caramel layer right um and I'm really psyched about it and it is definitely killing me so yeah (laughs) how long have you been working on it um I guess about a year but like really intensely for like 10 months sort of okay um but yeah it's supposed it's due in June so I just have that pressure of you know getting everything done right and it's weird because like confectionery stuff is so precise yeah so I'm just like we're I have people at the shop testing everything and then I have recipe testers that like out in the world right um and just making sure that everyone is on the same page right. with how to do all this stuff it's so different from just like a you know put some stuff in a pot and right. cook it and, and add some other stuff if it doesn't taste good <laughs> so it's weird that like you can't taste the recipes as you're making them really because right. it's like 250 degrees sugar um so yeah it's a funny project but I'm pretty psyched about it right and coming along what was the process to like getting to the cookbook deal um it was very hard um and stressful um yeah I happen to know a woman who's an agent so I talked to her and 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 somehow convinced her to take me on which Mm -hmm. was great um she's really wonderful and then you know our our like brand quote unquote um it is a brand there's no reason to put in quotes (laughs) um is so specific and our our customer base is so specific and I really didn't want to like water water it down or like dumb it down and I really didn't want to do like quick and easy you know vegan treats because like what's the point of that you know that's not us 
we are not quick or easy. <laughs> um, but um, there are some easy recipes in the book, I will say. Um, but yeah, so it was really hard to find a publisher that really got that. Yeah. Um, so I had a couple meetings with, with um, you know, I just kept hearing the same thing in meetings of that the editors loved it and everyone was super excited about it, but they didn't. It's such a niche market that it's really hard to find the right market for it. Um, but then I found a really great um, um, editor at Decapo Press um, who's super psyched about it. And um, so we'll see how it goes. Right, right, right. But yeah, it definitely was a long process of just convincing myself to not... Um, change my vision for it right. and to not you know, no one really suggested changing it I think everyone really was really terrific and even the editors that like didn't they couldn't really sell it you know they were still psyched about it right. and no one was like this is terrible don't do it but um yeah so we'll see how it goes what was the motivation for you to do a cookbook in the in the first place um, when you have so much going yeah, on yeah <laughs> totally um just wanted to yeah. I feel like you know I grew up my mom was a writer and I went to school for English and um just kind of felt that that's the end goal of my life has always been writing a book you yeah. know and I feel like that's a very specific kind of person where either that's everything you value in life or that's not right you know and like for people who are looking to write a book like that's that's who you are as a person right and I feel like that's who I am as a person and um so that was just kind of an inevitability because of that right um and now that even though it's harder than I thought it would be mm -hmm. um I am really psyched to kind of like get better at it hopefully do like a savory cookbook and different things right and, right right and it was really it was a great process um and I feel like I'm kind of my grandfather was a writer too and published books about nature and so I feel like I'm kind of like um fulfilling that family destiny of writing maybe right so yeah so it's nice cool cool it sounds very um egotistical but oh, oh no well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I'm a writer so yeah exactly I get it, <laughs> you get it. <laughs> um and I actually I did like kind of become obsessed with like your work through your blog and not your Aww, chocolate so thanks. for me you are a writer <laughs> um, um and yeah so that brings me to like a first real question um, <laughs> though, like can I just ask you like isn't yeah. it odd this world now of like I feel like I've always kind of like well I've always written things right. and I have like the blog and everyone has Instagram or you know whatever but it I still feel like we have this thing in our culture of, like, if you have a book contract that, like, legitimizes you as oh, a yeah. writer. Oh, yeah. And I think that's such crap because that's not what I believe in. No. But then still for myself, I used to never want to talk about writing or anything. I would just be embarrassed and, like, didn't – it just seemed like not a thing to mention or something. Right. Almost that it was, like, too sacred or something. But then when you have a book contract, like, I feel like it changed for me. I'm like, okay, and now I'm a writer, which yeah. I'm kind of ashamed of that trait in myself. You know, it's, <laughs> it's odd. I mean, but. yeah. It, it's, a, it's a struggle because I it took me a really long time to be okay with being public with what I would write or think yeah. and, and so but I like even just get it signing with an agent made me feel like a real writer exactly and then yeah, yeah. and then you're like oh my agent yeah exactly <laughs> it's, so it's like someone's working for me to yeah. like make me a writer you know I don't know but I'm, I haven't sold a book yet so well, I'm, sure you're, I'm sure you're around the corner uh, we'll see we'll see um Cool. And so, yeah, but um, when I was, like, a new vegan, I was kind of freaking out about how the food was bad and, like, that I was... For me, food had always been very, very important. So, like, to, to go from a whole world of eating to feeling like everyone was uh, was eating, like, bad things. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Totally. Just boring food that wasn't good. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, when I was reading you, I kind of felt like, oh, there is a vegan perspective that sort of reclaims 
what food is and real food and good food. And, um, I feel and, the way about your writing. All day. Totally. Uh, <laughs> and also from like not a like bougie classes mm. kind of framework. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to know how you developed your ethics and palate and how they complement or complicate each other. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it really came out of like an activism kind of spirit where right. I really felt like yeah, it's weird because for a long time I was that vegan who ate terrible food, but I think that I don't like meat analogs at all, and I never liked meat. Right. So I feel like that was kind of good for me because I never thought that, like, fake meat was good. Right. So I think that's maybe a not a trap people get into, but I don't know. I was never, like, impressed by any weird processed soy, like, TVP things. Um, but I really had a strong sense, like, when I went to culinary school and, and even, like, in college doing, like, vegan activism and even in high school doing vegan activism, that, like, the only way to advance, like, the vegan movement, which really sounds so cheesy, but that really is my only goal in life, right. um, would be to make stuff that was as good as or better than what, you know, than non-vegan food. So I've always tried to market our stuff to non-vegans and I've always tried to hold myself to a standard of non-veganism. It sounds so stupid, you know, but, um, but, and really try to like not get bogged down in, not, not be so much in the vegan world. Like I follow like very few like vegan chefs on Instagram, you know, not because they're bad. I just feel like it's not as, you know, this morning I was like, should I follow 11 Madison Park on Instagram? You know, I was like, wow, what interesting preparations and what, you know, it's obviously not right. food that I'm going to cook, but, um, but you know, then there was like, here's our veal, like blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I don't know. Like, can I just slide, like swipe past those things in order to learn new techniques? And, right. you know, it's, it's always been a line for me. And I, I really feel strongly that like vegans have to get out of the vegan bubble because it can be such an echo chamber of just congratulations. Right. And I, you know, I think that veganism has changed so much and it's advanced so much since I first became vegan. Um, but it's still just like, everyone's so happy for what, like a cannoli or something. Right. I don't know. You know it's like, <laughs> not that cannolis are bad, but, um, it's just strange. So, yeah. yeah. Um, are there lines that you have for yourself with, in terms of that, with following along with restaurants that do serve meat and that kind of thing. Like I have friends who work at the green market or something and one of them posted basically like a cow, I mean not a a pig carcass that had just been Mm -hmm. like roasted on a spit. And like I know so many Puerto Rican chefs and they're constantly putting pigs on spits. And it can feel a little jarring. So what, how do you, how do you kind of deal with that? Yeah, that is really hard because I pretty much only scroll through Instagram in the mornings and at night, which it's like the vulnerable (laughs) time when you're like, I really don't want to see like a whole dead pig. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think if someone posts, someone, some restaurant I follow did post like something like that. And I was like, no, goodbye. (laughs) Um, but I, I don't follow a ton of restaurants really. I follow a lot of chocolatiers who aren't vegan, but they're not posting, you know, whatever cows on cows on spits that's, not, that's how vegan I am but yeah no I definitely have seen things that I'm like that was not pleasant right um I, I went through this phase where we developed this um it's called the pig out bar this like yes, vegan bacon bar yeah. thing we make it every summer and um I got really obsessed with wanting to make like amazing vegan like a vegan bacon chocolate bar um so 
I just really went deep on like what is bacon because bacon is so like fetishized and everyone loves bacon and um, so I did all the like coconut bacon like which I think coconut bacon is terrible yeah. just gonna say um, and you know like so anyway so I started like smoking mushrooms and um, yuba we use it's like cold smoked yuba and I just really want to like get this bacon texture but because of that I forced myself to read this web page about how to make bacon mm. and it was just re- I was really just like holding my hand up to the computer like yeah, block yeah. out the pictures but I really wanted to know like right. how is how do you get these flavors obviously it's like dead animal flesh but right. other than that there's something done to right. make it you know be this thing and I feel like it's almost like this game of telephone where everything in the vegan world gets reduced down to like oh bacon is smoky okay so add liquid smoke you're done yeah. you know and like yeah. anything becomes bacon if you just add something that's like a little smoky right. and that's so that's not how the non-vegan world works right. you know and, that, and like no one would let that fly and so I think like we have to hold ourselves to this higher standard because everyone makes fun of vegans already right so let's like not encourage that <laughs> but um, yeah have you been vegan for a really long time have you do people make fun of vegans less now? You know, it's weird to me because I, I live in a completely vegan right. world where yeah. I just, I literally don't go anywhere except for my own three vegan businesses. Yeah. Um, and everyone who works at them is not vegan, right. but it's not like people who at work are talking about like hamburgers, right. you know? Yeah. Um, but I do, my sense is that people really, really make fun of vegans less because I, I don't really get in any fights about veganism ever. I mean, I don't know. I'm so far out of the world, but I've, I've seen with the business, I've seen it change a lot where in the beginning, people are very skeptical about veganism. Right. And when I started cooking professionally, it was kind of the height of Adkins diet, mm. which was just all meat and um, <laughs> like, you know, everything and everything was like spelt. It was like, there wasn't gluten-free hadn't really started. It was like right. meat-free. It was like these weird trends. And now I see that like our customers now are like, Oh, it's vegan. Oh, let me try it. Like, there's so much more, you know, it's weird having a vegan coffee shop because, you know, we ask people what milk they want. And this happened to me like an hour ago. And this guy was like, whole milk. And I was like, oh, we don't actually have dairy milk. And then I list off our six kinds of milk. And he was a super just mainstream looking dude. And he was like, oh, all right, I'll try the homemade cashew. You know, and I feel like there's, I would say once a month at the most, maybe we have someone walk out because we don't, they really want dairy milk. Right. But I thought that would happen like once a day. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I feel like it's changed a ton. Um, but I still do think that vegan is still kind of a, a synonym for like crappy in the chef world. Right. You yes. know? Yeah. Um, so there's that. Yeah. Oh, now we're getting a nice loud delivery. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually kind of like, I've been working on a theory around the idea that like, um, vegan food is best when it's casual. Like maybe mm-hmm. I've just had this really strange experience of some good fine dining vegan experiences, but mostly very boring yeah, food. Um, totally. But I don't know. Do you think that veganism and fine dining are can be compatible? Oh, I think they totally can be. I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think. Like even like I did this series of dinners. Like two years ago, I did a bunch of these super fancy dinners and it was like 12 courses, like, you know, but it was just like, I'm not hating on myself because I think I'm a pretty good cook, but it was for me in New Paltz, there's nothing like that. Yeah. And it was just kind of like, it's exciting for people to have a multi-course meal. It's exciting for people to have, obviously like for it to be vegan, but I know that the techniques, like I'm not a fine dining chef, you know, and like that wouldn't, it wouldn't have flown 
in New York City at a real fine dining restaurant, you know? Mm -hmm. And for me, it was fun to be like, oh, experiment with spheres and molecular gastronomy and all these things. But, um, like, I see for myself just the disconnect between the level I'm at and true fine dining. Because, right. you know, I think as a just to sharpen my skills, I try to go out to fancy restaurants pretty often. And, you know, so I kind of have a good sense of what's out there. And I don't think, like, there's nothing in the, the vegan world that is, you know, the as great as, um, you know, a linear or something. But I will say, just to throw some shade, why not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I went to the um, next, you know, that restaurant, like right. vegan dinner, yeah. and I thought it was pretty a little dumb. Like right. they did this fancy, fancy meal and you had to bid on the tickets and it was like the most expensive meal of my life and I went to Chicago for it and I was like, well, this is what fancy chefs think of is vegan. Right. And it was just the most, you know, they had tempeh and I was like, oh, do you make your own tempeh? Because I just figured like, yeah, they're going to make their own tempeh and they're like, what? Oh, wow. You know, like you couldn't make tempeh, you know? And I was like, <laughs> hey, you can make tempeh. Like, <laughs> I don't know. That's, so it was, that's really, it was interesting to see the flip yeah. side of it, yeah. you know? And then when you go to like, I know I went to um, Per Se, and, you know, sometimes you go to a super fancy restaurant and they work, like, Alinea actually was like that when I went there. And they work so hard to make everything comparable. There was right. nothing of, like, oh, we'll just leave off half the dishes. Right. Everything was, like, amazing. And they made a vegan version of every single thing, which is weird because it's owned by the same person who works right. next. But, anyway, <laughs> um, but then, you know, I've been to a lot of other fancy restaurants where it's just, like, even if, especially if you're with a non-vegan. And right. you're like, oh, I just got the sorbet yeah. minus the like other things yeah. you know and and I feel like people really think like oh that's fine because they're vegan yeah. but to go back to your original question <laughs> I don't think there's any reason that there can't be really amazing vegan fine dining right but I just think it hasn't but it makes sense because when you look at the proportion of chefs who do that really high-end stuff like of course there's just a lower proportion of vegan chefs in general right you know yeah Okay, but I do really think that who gives a shit about fine dining? Oh, exactly. Also, no, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, like, yeah, I it's hard because it's like it is the standard by which you judge, I don't know, what's yeah. going on. It shouldn't be. It's just. Yeah. It's, but it is kind of fun. It is but fun. But it's kind of like. But it's whatever. also worthless, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Like every time someone asks me my favorite vegan restaurant in New York, I say. Well, superiority burger and toad style. Yeah, and those and are like so like they're like cousins, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I definitely feel that way, and I don't think it's a coincidence that superiority burger is someone who worked in the fine dining context and actively rejects that. Yes, you yeah, know, and really is like, but also takes that that theory of hospitality and is it's such a hospitable place. Right. It's not, but I also think toad style is too. You know, yeah, and, and yeah. it's just like you know, cool punk kids who are like, let's just be nice to people, right? Which yeah. is really what fine dining hospitality is you know right so it all comes from a circle <laughs> I hope so um so you have the sliding scale socialist soup at commissary um I wanted to ask how how like important is the accessibility of your product to you and yeah do you think that there's things veganism can do to prove better that it is for everyone yeah, I think that everything veganism does, it's failing at proving that it's good for everyone. I think that's the number one stumbling block of veganism is how middle class and white it's perceived as. Right. Which is so funny because there are so many traditions around the world that are naturally vegan that for some reason have not been celebrated within the American vegan world. Right. And I don't know, I think it's interesting like to do these 
like we did this market this week, um, this vegan, it was called Vegetarian Food Festival, but it was vegan. Um, and there's a lot of like African American, like, like, um, businesses there that are vegan. And I'm and, like, this is, this is a thing, but it's yeah. not celebrated or, I mean, I think it is celebrated, but I don't know. It's like kind of, um, we need to kind of amplify those voices a lot more, right. you know? Um, and I do think there is a huge perception that veganism costs, you know, in terms of class, there's race issues. And I think there's also class issues right. in that there's a huge perception that veganism just costs more. And I think because people see these $13 cheeses and, you know, really expensive meat analogs, when of course, like rice and beans is like the original vegan food, right. you know, and every culture around the world has like a version of that that's naturally vegan, but it hasn't, those things haven't been as like celebrated sort of. Right. Um, but that said, I'm totally guilty of that because we sell $12 chocolate bars, right. you know? <laughs> so it's kind of that balance of paying a fair price for ingredients right. and that, and then also, um, you know, paying, paying your workers well and making affordable things. Um, yeah. So we try to kind of combat it at our, at our coffee shop with a sliding scale soup. Right. Um, it's strange because New Paltz is a very middle-class town. It's a college town. And I don't, it, it's funny, like, sometimes I don't get the feeling that people who really need a, a kind of cheaper, like, pay what you want kind of thing, those people aren't coming to our coffee shop. Right. Um, but I actually just rang someone up at commissary and, and she just, it was just a person who was just like, oh, can I pay $3? And, and was feeding her family. She got three soups. And I was just like, this is what it is. This yeah, is yeah, so yeah. great, you know? And it made me feel really good. Um, so who knows? I don't know. <laughs> but I also don't think that like one sliding scale option on a menu is like, it's not really doing anything, right? you know, but I think it's, that's really a more of an issue of governmental subsidies right. and wages being too low. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of issues there. Right. Yeah. Um, so you are, you are very careful with your sourcing of ingredients and that is why the chocolate bars cost what they do. Um, do you think that within veganism there is a consciousness about that? Um, I mean... <laughs> I don't want to just be a kind of hater, but right. no, I mean, I feel like so, I've, I know lots of vegans who are very aware of it, definitely, right. but I feel like overall, vegans want treats, and they just really want right. um, what they want, which, see, okay, I have this theory about veganism, which is a lot of people became vegan when they were like 15, and so you're your palate gets locked in time and so you really want this like supermarket birthday cake you had one year when you were like 10 and most people grow up and they're like I don't really want a supermarket birthday cake that's not my ultimate treat but vegans always have this really stupid issue of like deprivation which annoys me because I feel like it it ties into all these class and race issues too of like like you're not you're voluntarily not eating something you're not like like calm down with like, Oh, I just want this, you know, these like cravings or, or things. Right. Um, so I feel like because of, of that, and, and I feel like there's this world now of, um, you know, with Instagram of like showing off the like fancy vegan thing that you got yeah. and, and, you know, taking your picture of your ice cream cone held up against the wall or whatever. <laughs> and it's just so ah, like gluttonous. And yeah. I mean, I say this as someone who literally makes chocolate for a living, right. but it, um, really kind of sticks in my crawl. A little <laughs> <bit>. <laughs> There's probably a non-vegan metaphor. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I feel like if we could really, and I know lots of groups doing it, like food empowerment project is a great group that's run by vegans that are, it's really like a very political, um, you know, overtly 
vegan and um, you know group that's looking into food justice issues, and there's right. lots of people doing things. But I think that the average vegan, are they really thinking about these issues? I feel like not as much as we could be. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like veganism stops for a lot of people with being vegan. Well, I think that's the thing. The funny thing is I think people think like, oh, but I'm not eating animals, so I'm doing this great thing. Yeah. But the weird thing about being vegan is like, unlike, I feel like so many other um, like social justice or other like activist movements, it's really not hard. Like, especially after you do it for a while. Right. You know, I mean, I'm kind of privileged in that I... I didn't really crave meat, you know, and I don't really, I've been vegan for so long that I don't know what like non-vegan stuff tastes like. And I, I don't want to say that for other people, it's not hard, you know, yeah. but I, I think that for some people it's not hard. And then if it gets to that point where you're like, this is actually very easy for me, then, then that's your obligation is to be like, what can I do to take it to the next level? You know, because right. it's not really activism after a while. I mean, yeah, it's terrible. eating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so are the same reasons, the reasons you became vegan initially still the reasons you are vegan or has that evolved? Yeah, no, it hasn't evolved at all. <laughs> um, it's just total, uh, meat is murder, exact same, you know, Morrissey crap. Um, it's his birthday today, apparently. Happy birthday, Morrissey. Yeah. If you ever want a treat, listen to the Morrissey audiobook. Oh, yeah. It's, he's, uh, everyone knows Morrissey's Insufferable. The yeah. audiobook really, really gets in deep with that. <laughs> and it's read by a guy named Morrissey who's not Morrissey. Oh, my God. Highly recommended. That's anyway, um, yeah, no, the only reason I'm vegan is because I think if you can not kill something, don't kill that thing. Yeah. And that has never changed in... 20 years, right. 25 years, 25 years. <laughs> yeah. Let's do some math. Um, and that's, you know, there's lots of reasons to be vegan, like environmentalism or, you know, even human rights in terms of how the workers in slaughterhouses are, you know, have such right. high rates of suicide, blah, blah, blah. Um, but for me, I'm like, if something cannot die for me, I'm going to do that. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Simple answer. For <laughs> <once>. <laughs> um, so you recent in 2016 you opened confectionery in the East Village. Yes. Um, when I was up here a couple of weeks ago, I was kind of struck by how many businesses had the signs, including yours, for like New York Healthcare for All. Yeah. Which I don't see ever in Brooklyn where I live or in oh, New York no. City. Like I never see those things. So I was kind of wondering how how it has been running a shop there versus here. Like what are the what are the clientele differences? What hmm. is who were who are the people who come to eat each place? Yeah, I'm really fascinated by it. I think the reason so many shops in this town have those signs is because of one person. Okay. Welcome to a small town life. And the reason <laughs> we have that confectionery is just because I brought it down. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yay, Beth Dulay, doing good work. Um, but um, it's weird because I feel like on the one hand, we have our customers who just come to us where we are. Right. So I think confectionery is an interesting mix and commissary too. It's an interesting mix of here is just we're on a side street so it's like the chocolate shop is like you have to really come to us you right, know right, but right. commissary people definitely walk in because they just want coffee um and confectionery people walk in because they're just walking past and they're like what is this place um i think it's a mix of people who know us and people who are just curious about um stuff and i think in commissary we get a lot of people who are like oh i heard they have good coffee and like probably don't even know that we're vegan um and that's great yeah. you know and that I know we have a customer here who's been coming for years and years and um didn't know we were vegan for a long time and I think that's so awesome <laughs> um uh but I think confectionery is so fascinating because you know I'm like a I 
I lived in New Jersey, but I never actually lived in New York proper. Right. And at one point I was working there like six days a week. So I've put in my New York time, but I still also feel like that girl from Arizona who's like so starstruck by like New York City. Um, and it really is so New York City-ish. Like there's so many bonkers people. It's just like, a, it, it's just itself, you know? Right. And even though the East Village is so gentrified and so expensive and so annoying, there are those bits of East Village-ness, which is, there. you know, yeah. yeah, why we opened up there. And um, and it's really fun to see that, you know? And a lot of our core customers down there are just true East Village weirdos, you know? <laughs> and thank God, it's, it makes me so happy. Yeah. It's, it's the best thing ever. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah. different and... And not different. <laughs> yeah, it's I, every time I'm in the East Village, I'm like, this is the city I thought I was moving to when yeah. I was a kid. Like, because I grew up so close to the city, and I was like, oh, it's so cool. Like in the '90s when I was a kid, and I'd go to the city. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, it sucks now. It's true. Yeah. And it really does. But whatever. Yeah, it's kind of also like, well, here we are. Here we are. Yes. Um, can you talk more about talk more at all about the phrase resistance is fertile which is the title of your blog and it's on the counter at commissary yes. <laughs> I was so embarrassed by it because I didn't really know okay this is going to sound insane but I did not know about Star Trek okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't aware I mean I knew about Star Trek, right. but I didn't really think about this connection. Anyway, so there's this book, um, Oliver Creation by Ruth Ozeki, and she's an amazing writer. I love her work. And this phrase, resistance is fertile, is used in the book um, by these like anarchist punk seed weirdos, and they travel in a van. And um, so, and I just love the idea of um, like putting yourself in a space of resistance and taking yourself out of like the world of sadness and Trump president and all these things and kind of creating your own world around you where you can have space to think about um, what kind of world we want and how you want to treat people. So that I like it really is a very fertile space you right. know and I think that's really beautiful um so yeah so we're like oh let's put this on the counter at commissary because well, that'll be a fun thing and so many people are like oh wow resistance is futile this is so great and it took me like six months so I was like where is this from like I don't know how <laughs> I was so out of I knew that phrase but yeah. I don't know um so a lot of people we have to be like fertile but, um, but it's really, you know, I think a lot of people too are like, wow, that's really cool. Um, but now I feel embarrassed about it. Like, it's kind of like that thing that's like your special thing. And then you kind of like my whole business, like put it out in the world a lot. And then and you're like, oh, yours. it's kind of yeah. weird now, but it's all right. It's now it's our Wi-Fi password. So of course, <laughs> that's, how it, that's how life goes. Um, so I think this is pretty self-explanatory and anyone would know this by coming here or anything, but, um, can you kind of talk about how cooking is for you a political act sure um yeah well I guess I just feel like um it, it is on a lot of levels obviously through your kind of supply chain and how the little ways that you buy things make such a huge impact um you know we had a dish on our menu at commissary because it was winter mashed potatoes and gravy and everyone loved it and we had like these nice green beans and um and it was good because it was like january right. and it was a lovely hearty meal but then we recently took it off even though it was our best seller because we were like all of this is coming just from like our food distributor and right. you know who knows i mean i think it's probably mashed potatoes are probably fine but you know sometimes you're buying like grapes from Peru and you're like I don't know what the you know probably honestly the standards are worse in the U.S. and I feel like they're probably better everywhere else around the world <laughs> I don't know um but you know you don't you don't 
you know, know how standards are being upheld in terms of um, organic or fair trade or, you know, um, well, I feel like I lost my train of thought. Anyway, oh, no. <laughs> um, you know, so just trying to kind of, it is such a tangible difference. We work with a local farm for commissary to get a lot of our produce and we plan our menus around what they have instead of vice versa. And every year we kind of sit with them and we're like, you know, and they're like, what do you, what, what did we not grow as much of this year? What, what do you need more of? What do you want to um, work with? So, you know, I always felt like we didn't order enough from them. And I always feel right. nervous about that because it's like, these farmers are like, you know, they don't do a full farmer's market because they sell stuff to us. So I always feel a little bit like we got to really support them. And then this year they told me that they um, recently hired a full-time employee because they're doing well because we buy so much stuff from them. Oh, that's you know, and it's like, wow, these are my friends. And now they're, this is, they started out being part-time farmers and now they're full-time farmers and they're hiring other people and they're building hoop houses and getting grants for greenhouses, you know, and it's like, that's a real difference in my community. Um... So there's that aspect of it. Um, I feel like also just cooking is so powerful in that people don't really cook anymore. And it's so, like, sounds cheesy to say, but empowering just to have that ability. I know for me, like, it's so wonderful for me to be like, this is what I'm craving. I will make it for myself. Right. And it's just a really amazing, um, I don't know, feminist, I don't know, just kind of really great act of, like, I can take care of myself and, and be nice to myself. And, you know, it's really self-care and all those things. Yeah. <laughs> um, how would you, do you have any, would you give advice to someone if they came to you and they were like, how can I better support my local food economy? What would you say? Wow. Huh. Yeah. Um, I feel like so, you know, that like Woody Allen quote of like mm, something people who show up, you know, it's yeah. just, I feel like just showing up and just, um, going to your farmer's market. You know, we have a weird catch-22 with a farmer's market in New Paltz. It drives me crazy, but we don't have a good farmer's market. And it's because all the farmers don't want to come to a market that's not well attended, right. but all the people don't want to come to a market where there's no produce. Right. So it's just been like this for years. And I think working, working in your community to see how to kind of bring food to your community and work with different farmers and see what they need. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like there's a million ways. I know that um, Dot, who works at Commissary, um, they just started like a, I don't really get it. It's like Food Not Bombs type um, group, but it's not Food Not Bombs, which is funny because there is a Food Not Bombs in New Paltz, but they're <laughs> starting their own thing, which is awesome. And it's just so cool. They're so excited. They, they're cooking their first meals for it today. And just little things like that of like just cooking meals for your community or, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think just kind of looking around and being like, what do people need? What? How can I engage with this system? You right, know? right, right. If that made sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, are there any books that have kind of created your politics and ethics that you or hmm. like required reading? You would say so many. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, let's see. In terms of like, well. Okay, in terms of, like, veganism, right. I really think that Carol Adams' books are yeah. amazing. Um, Sexual Politics of Meat, like, just really turns your brain inside out. And, like, Pornography of Meat is, is amazing. I know she just put out a new book, Burger, which oh, I haven't I pulled at the, at the bookstore. Yeah. I, haven't, I haven't picked it up, but it was good. <laughs> it was good, cool. yeah. Cool, nice. Um, yeah, she's really great. It's, it's really funny because when I became vegan, I was super into Diet for a New America, which is the most old-school vegan book. I wonder what would happen if someone read it now. 
I don't know. Be, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting because it's written by John Robbins, who was the heir to the Baskin Robbins oh, wow. theme. So that's really fascinating. Um, let's see. In terms of, um, I think there's a lot more food books. Um, I really love, um, there's a series of business books from the Zingerman's Deli, and it's called like the Lapsed Anarchist Guide to, um, they have one of like being a better leader and, um, I don't know, a bunch of different ones. And there's like six different books. Those are really great for me in terms of business advice mm-hmm. and just kind of being like, oh, so you, at first I laughed at the idea of like anarchist business book, right. but it's kind of like a weird little subgenre that has been really great of, I think it's very easy for like quote unquote real anarchists to really laugh at. And I get why people would, right. because obviously anarchism is incompatible with capitalism. However, here we are. <laughs> and I'm just going to try to do the best I can within this this world I'm in Um, and so within that you know there are a lot of good books about like okay you're trying to run a business with a heart how can you do this in a way that's minimally harmful to your employees and I think also a lot of small business owners who've been in like activist um, backgrounds it's really hard and women especially um, it's really hard for people to kind of make their peace with how to be a leader in a way Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was really good for me to have a, 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 a book that's like let's face it, you're a boss. Yeah. Just learn how to be a good one, you know, because you're not helping anyone by deflecting, by admitting you don't have power, you right. know. And maybe that's a true anarchist would say that I've been totally brainwashed. But <laughs> here we are today. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what are you excited about in in the next, like, six months, year? What's really exciting you? Um, okay, here's my thing. Okay. I'm super excited to finish this book. Right. And then for the first time ever, I'm going to try to learn how to relax. <laughs> um, that's what I'm excited about. I'm going to try to take two days off a week, which sounds insane. Right. And just be, just saying it, I feel like a little nervous. Um, but yeah, I'm going to try to really like learn how to be a human being who's not focused on work all the time. I don't know if that's where your question was leading. No, but, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, work-wise, I'm always super excited about, like, we're always, it sounds really cheesy to say, but we're always doing a little bit better than we were before. And it's so funny to look at where we were even six months ago and be like, oh, we hadn't figured out that you could cut the teeny melt this different way. You know, just these little changes that so many people on our staff will see things that in a way that I would never see it and point them out. And it just like changes our lives sort of um so I'm always excited for that kind of stuff um yeah I don't know just all kinds of little little (laughs) things like that I I feel like I used to have all this um nervousness about hiring people and Mm -hmm. kind of bringing new people into our fold and training them and it's so much work and now I kind of have an excitement about like meeting new people and and giving them good skills and hopefully good jobs and stuff like that so yeah all right awesome well, thank you for uh, chatting with me. Well, thank you. Thank You're you. a personal hero of mine. Oh, okay. so, this is a real treat. Oh, thank you. That's crazy. <laughs> crazy.